Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this precious word that came from the mouth of your son, and we ask you to give us the ability to hear it today. Grant us faith. Father, I am insufficient to the task of delivering this clearly and articulately, and I need you to fill up what I lack. By your Holy Spirit, strengthen us all, give us ears to hear, pierce our hearts, and grow us into maturity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, are, are you familiar? Have you heard the phrase imposter syndrome? It's something I've seen more and more places, and it's an interesting kind of observation. Imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome is a term used to describe the inability of very capable and qualified people to appreciate their own accomplishments even when there's open, explicit evidence that they are competent, they're convinced inside their own heads and hearts that they're really just big phonies who don't deserve the praise and accolades and success that they have achieved. And any further evidence of their real value, any, any promotion or, or any praise, they just chalk their success up to luck or to good timing or maybe... They feel, well, I've just deceived other people into thinking that I'm more competent than I am, or I've deceived people into thinking that I'm more intelligent than I really am. Many very talented people struggle with this internal conflict. They really don't believe themselves to be as good as other people say that they are. And it seems to me, while you want to have a, a, uh, an integrity of person. You want to know who you are and you want to know where your place is. It, it seems to me that that's not a mental disorder. In fact, I think there's a part of that. In a sense, it's pretty, pretty healthy. There's a humility there. There's a refusal in that to take oneself too seriously. Because you have, on the other hand, people who are way too confident, 
who are way too self-assured, who have no business whatsoever being so confident. In fact, you can probably think of some very not bright people who are very confident in their intelligence and in their abilities, and they're extremely self-confident, and their estimation of their own competence is really way out of line with reality. Now, that's not to say that everyone who lacks competence is a genius, and everyone who is really confident is a dummy. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, that doesn't work. But what it does point to is our own lack of skill in self-diagnosis of our own identity, of our own place in the world, of our own place in communities, of our own skills. Um, it, we, we don't know ourselves. And if we're bad at diagnosing ourselves, how often do we miss the mark with other people? <laughs> if, if, if we don't know who we are and can't rightly estimate our value and place, <laughs> what business do we have uh, acting like experts when it comes to other people? We come to uh, this section of the Gospel of Luke. The identity, the person, the work of Jesus is being called into question. Who is he? Everyone's asking. Everyone's confused. There's, there's not a lot of clarity among the crowds on who Jesus is. Now, there's no indication that Jesus struggled with uh, imposter syndrome, that he ever wondered who he was. No, I'm not saying that at all. He it certainly didn't. It is a mystery how Jesus grew to understand his role, how the man, Jesus of Nazareth, grew as a child and into adulthood, understanding who he was and what his mission was. And I wonder if the full uh, revelation of that didn't come at his baptism, that he, he, he realizes there, his, his full uh, mission and identity. But there's a lot of mystery there that we just don't have answers for. But there is enough confusion. Jesus is not confused about who he is. There is enough confusion to go around, though, as people try to figure out what to make of Jesus. Is he really anything special? There's this slow, unfolding, gradual revelation of the mission and person of Jesus, though Luke repeatedly emphasizes certain things about the identity of the Lord Jesus. What did the angels announce at his birth? The angels rejoice that, that here is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Mary, Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna all rejoice in their own ways at the deliverance that God was sending through this boy, Jesus. John the Baptist pointed the people to Jesus as the one promised by the prophets. God the Father spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Even the demons have confessed that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Even the demons have said, you are the son of God. So the gospel of Luke reverberates. It echoes with these declarations about the identity of Jesus. But not everybody in the book of Luke has gotten the message. Not everybody in this narrative understands completely who he is. His brothers want to take him home and talk some sense into him. They know the path that he's on. They know where this is headed. Respected religious leaders from his hometown and the areas and villages surrounding his hometown say, they scoff, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he? And, and they say things like, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? 
In spite of his earlier confession, John the Baptist is even puzzled by the things he had heard. And, and John the Baptist had to ask, are, are you the promised one or do we wait for another? Herod, of course, is scratching his head as we saw last week. Who is this man I'm hearing about? So surrounding Jesus, there's a great deal of confusion about who exactly he is and what exactly he is doing. So we open up this section of Luke's gospel and one day Jesus is praying alone and his disciples gather around them, uh, him and, and he asks them, he asks them this question, who do crowds say that I am? The people, the multitudes, who do they say that I am? Uh, this is a perfect way to open up a topic. Let's talk about what everybody else is saying about me. What are you hearing out there as you minister and work and speak about the kingdom what are people saying? So they answered. Some say you're John the Baptist. In fact, that's the most popular theory going, that you're the resurrected John the Baptist. Some others say Elijah. Some people say that you're one of the old prophets who's been resurrected and you've come back. See, it's been more than 400 years since the last of the great prophets. And the people who have been studying the scriptures, the people who know Israel's history and they know God's word, they are are being asked to connect what Jesus is doing to Israel's history, and they draw a connection, well, Jesus must be one of the prophets. To try to explain what Jesus is doing, the best way to define that is he's, he's another one of the prophets. There's this sense that Jesus was operating like one of them, and that's the best way they know to explain things. But the apostles know, and they're starting to realize and understand that Jesus is more than one of the old prophets. He's done things that none of the old prophets ever did. He spoke with an authority and he's unfurled God's word in a way that they've never heard before. There are new things here to what Jesus is doing. So then Jesus asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And in, in fact, in the original language, it's emphatic. Who do you say that I am? By the way, as an aside, what a great way for a teacher or a parent to draw a young person, a child, into conversation. I do this every time I, I try, uh, every time I can, I, I try to do this uh, with my kids. What, what is everybody saying about X? Let me hear what everybody's saying. Let me, let me hear what's going on. And then, and then they tell me, and they say, well, what do you think about X, Y, Z? What, what do you think? So you say, what's everybody saying? And you listen, and then you say, what do you think? Think. And that puts them in a position to draw conclusions and connections and articulate their own thoughts about what's going on. And that's exactly what Jesus does. What is everybody saying? They answer. What do you think? And he listens. And the question that Jesus asks here, by the way, who do you say that I am? That is the most important question ever in the whole entire history of the world in the whole entire universe, that is the most important question. I don't think I can overstate this point. Who is Jesus? That question is the most critical question that each of us will ever answer. Who is he? Is he a myth? Is he a legend? Is he a nobody? A phony? A, 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 a con artist that stumbled into this first century Palestinian spotlight and he got all kinds of undeserved acclaim? Is Jesus simply a, a great teacher in history? A wise man who said some interesting things? You can take some of it, you can leave some of it. Is 
Jesus, a charismatic but misdirected leader who stirred discontented people up and convinced them to go on these disastrous crusades in his name. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Is he the second person of the Trinity? Is he the eternal, eternally begotten son of the Father? Is he fully God and fully man? Is Jesus the Savior and the King of the whole world? Who is he? Who do you say that he is? If you were to be asked this question, who is he? This question is critical for every single human being to answer. It means every one of you in this room within the sound of my voice must have an answer to this question. Who is Jesus? No one gets a pass. No one gets to say, ah, ah, let me, uh, you got another question? I can take another question. Uh, you know, who's playing football at three o'clock today? I know, I know who's playing. Uh, I'll take that question. No, you don't get a pass. Everyone has to answer this question. And by the way, this question has an objectively correct answer. <laughs> Jesus doesn't ask his men, who do you feel that I am? <laughs> uh, as if his identity were open to debate or open to emotion or many different approaches, many different acceptable responses to this question. See, we're used to questions like that. We're always being asked how we feel or what we think. You know, not, not what do we believe, but uh, what, do we, what do we think? Not what are we convicted. We, we, and, and so we're trained to think like this, that, that something can be personally true for me, but not necessarily objectively true for everyone all the time. So that, well, for me personally, Jesus is Lord and Savior and king of all creation. But for you, I mean, I can kind of see how you'd come up with a different answer for that. You know, it's just up to you to decide. Well, that's not the kind of question that Jesus asks. This isn't one of those fuzzy questions where the answers are like jello. There is only one correct answer. Only one answer is right in spite of our modern approach to, to make Jesus whoever you want him to be. Enlist him to serve whatever agenda or whatever purpose or whatever argument you want to make. You see, how you answer this question defines your whole life and it determines your eternity. Your whole existence comes through a point of how this question is answered in your life. If you trust in his account of his own birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, as it's given to us in his word through the gospel, if you're joined to his life by baptism, if you commune in his life, in the body, you have that life forever. If you reject who he is, if you reject his rule over all creation, if you ignore his word, if you reject his spirit, you have no part in this life. And so it's a pretty important question. I hope, I hope everyone in this room has wrestled with this question and has an answer for it. Jesus asked the question. And Peter, of course, has never wanted to hang back and let other people do the talking. You know, if Peter's got an opportunity to speak up, he answers boldly. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God. He just, he just jumps right out there and says, the Christ of God. What does he mean? Well, he means the anointed of God, the Messiah of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, it wasn't Mary Christ and Joseph Christ had a baby named Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. So when we talk about the name of Jesus, well, his name is Yeshua. His name is Deliverer. His name is Savior. His name is Jesus. Christ is his title. 
He's Jesus the Christ. He's Jesus the anointed one. He's Jesus the Messiah. And so this is what Peter says. Jesus is the anointed of God. Jesus is the Messiah of God. You're not, Peter says, you're not just one of the old prophets. You are the promised deliverer. You came to rule Israel. Not to simply say that the kingdom is coming, as one of the prophets would say, but you have come to bring in the kingdom and rule over the kingdom. That is who you are. And that is the confession that Peter makes here. Remember last week how I said, the Lord Jesus is manifesting his power and his authority. He's doing this through a string of mighty acts, healings, resurrections, feeding the multitudes, quieting the storm, calming the sea, casting out demons. And he'd been doing all these things in front of an audience of 12 men. He's doing these things for the benefit of that 12-man audience so that they would get it, so that they would see and know his power and know his identity and then go in that power and authority and do likewise. So here, Peter can answer this question because he's been part of that audience. But you remember, it wasn't too long ago that Peter couldn't ask this question. In most of your Bibles, it's only one or two pages back to chapter 8. Verse 25, where after the storm, uh, what, what, are the, what do the apostles say to each other? Uh, Jesus asks them after he calms the storm, he says, where is your faith? They were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who can this be? Who is this? For he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. Just a short time before this, they can't answer this question, but today they can answer this question. Today, Peter can answer this question boldly. What has changed? What is different? between chapter 8 and chapter 9, even though these chapter divisions, we always acknowledge these chapter divisions are come much, much, much later. Peter didn't break it into chapter, I'm sorry, Luke didn't uh, divide his book into chapter and verse. But, but in this intervening time, what has happened? Well, it goes back to the parable of the soils that comes right at the start of this section of Luke's gospel. You see, the crowds are still confused. The Pharisees don't have an answer. The word has been sown among the Pharisees and among the crowds, but it hasn't taken root. It hasn't produced any fruit. But in these men, these 12 men, the word has been sown and it has been received and it has been accepted and kept and cultivated. And now it is bearing fruit. And what is the fruit that we see faith. Lots of people have seen the miracles. Lots of people ate the bread and the fish, but miracles alone don't produce faith. Miracles on their own did not convince people of the identity of Jesus. Peter and the apostles are interpreting these miracles through the lens of faith. They're seeing the world through the new eyes that the Holy Spirit had given them because now they hear and receive the word of Jesus. Now, this does not mean that they understood everything completely about who Jesus was and, and what we, he was here to do. They don't understand his mission. In fact, Jesus is just about to tell them some things they don't know, some things that are going to perplex them, some things that are even going to upset them. But they're moving beyond incomprehension, moving beyond the perspective of the crowds, moving beyond the perspective of Herod to greater understanding. Now, here's what you and I can rest in. I think there's a great encouragement in this, that Peter says, you're the Christ of God, and Jesus accepts his confession of faith, 
even though there's lots of stuff that Peter doesn't know at this point. In fact, Peter is pretty ignorant of most of what we would call Christology, what, most of what we would call the study and the understanding of who Jesus is. Peter's ignorant of this, but the Lord Jesus accepted his confession as genuine and acceptable. And so you and I don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have plunged the depths of the mysteries of the person and work of the Lord Jesus in, for, in order for our confession to be real and genuine and acceptable. One of the things that is sort of unfolding for me as I work through Luke this time is how small acts, simple expressions of faith count, reaching for the hem of his garment, um, crying out, Lord, Lord, help me, be merciful to me. These little expressions of faith count and they count big. There's a reformed tendency to intellectualize faith and I'm guilty of it. And I think we're all to some degree guilty of making faith an academic exercise to define faith in terms of what you can articulate. Now, I don't want to take anything away from anything I've ever said about the fact that we all need to be growing and learning and studying and maturing in every possible dimension. Absolutely not. But, but faith is not merely an intellectual exercise. Faith is not simply academic. It's apparent for many of the people that we've met in Luke's gospel, their confession of faith can be summed up by the little phrase, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. That's the sum total. I am in desperate situation and I need help. And you're the only source of comfort and strength and salvation and deliverance. Jesus, help me. And if I had to be honest, there are times when my prayers are that complicated, that theologically dense. Simply, Jesus, help me. That when you're out of words... And when you're out of strength and when, when you've said everything that can be said, it just comes down to that. Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. You know, thou that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And, and that's, that's, that's what it boils down to. That is, that is the kind of confession of faith that we see. And even Peter, he says, you're the, you're the Christ of God. There are things that Peter doesn't know. There are things that Peter can't articulate, but what he does know and what he's banking his whole life on at this point is that Jesus is the Christ of God. Whatever that means, <laughs> however that works out, you are the Christ of God. You are the chosen, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed. That is his confession of faith and that is acceptable to God such that Jesus acknowledges it and then he warns them. He says, yeah, that's right. And in fact, what you just said is so potent, it's so powerful, that it's dangerous. So he warns them immediately that you shouldn't tell anybody this, what you just told me. Tell no one. Why does Jesus say, immediately after Peter says that, he says, don't tell anybody. He strictly warns them and he commands them to tell no one. Well, it's because all of Palestine is a powder keg. At this point, the people detest the tyranny and the oppression of Rome. They long for deliverance and they're ready to follow anybody who can give them hope. Anybody who claims to be the Messiah. Revolts and insurgencies are common in this period. If word got out to the wrong people, 
that Jesus was the Messiah, there would be people who heard, heard that as a political claim. There would be people who hear that as a military claim. And they would completely miss out on what Jesus was trying to teach them. Yes, he's the Messiah, but when people hear Messiah, they think political deliverer. They think this man is going to lead us on a march against Rome. We're going to kick Herod out. We're going to, we're going to kick uh, Pilate out. But Jesus came to do so much more than that. So Jesus tells his men, keep it close, keep it quiet. Because Jesus is managing his own timetable, he's on his own schedule, and he lays out his plan now for how he's going to accomplish the deliverance and salvation of his people. I read it just a minute ago, but I want to, uh, it's been a few minutes, so let's uh, catch up. Remember what he says in verse 22. He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The picture that he paints here is not one that they were expecting to hear, I'm sure, when they gave up their jobs and families to come follow him. What they hear now and what falls on their ears surely sounds like defeat. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I read ahead. The, the part I'm talking about is the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. That's the plan. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised the third day. That's, that sounds like defeat. And then the other gospels, when Jesus says this, they protest. They say, surely not. This is where uh, Jesus says to Peter, you know, get behind me, Satan, because of his protests. This doesn't look like a great plan. How do you think we're going to win and be successful through a path of suffering and rejection? I don't get how that works. It sounds like Jesus is saying, hey, fellas, I'm going to go lose, and I want you to come lose with me. We're all going to be big losers together. And they think if he's a real Messiah, he's supposed to win. The real Messiah doesn't suffer. He doesn't get rejected. He doesn't get killed. All the false messiahs are killed, and that proved how false they were. If I told you, hey, I've got a big plan. Here's how we're going to turn things around. We're all going to get our heads kicked in. You want to come with me? You want to get your head kicked in? That's the plan. That's our plan for victory. So, so even with the profession of faith from the apostles, now hearing this, you put yourself in their shoes, and you know they have to be thinking, we came out here for this? With all that you can do, Jesus, with all that we have seen you do, with what we have heard you say, this is the plan? We can do better than this. We can put together an army. We've got to talk to the right people, but I know we can do it. And with them and with your power, we can change the world that way. But Jesus says that's not the plan. Because the only path to glory runs through the cross and the grave. The only way you get to live is by dying. The only way that the world is going to be delivered, not only from the temporary tyrants who are a pain, but we've got bigger tyrants. We've got sin and death and the grave. Those tyrants must be overturned. And the only way that those tyrannies are going to be overturned is through the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the God-man. So then Jesus invites them to join him on this path. As I, uh, I, I skipped ahead, but let me read it again. He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus is saying, as I am faithful and obedient to my father in heaven, I'm going to follow a path of suffering and rejection. I'm going to be confronted with great hostility. Those who follow me on that path are going to get the same thing. You're going to get the same 
rejection. You're going to get the same treatment. You will suffer with me, not merely for the sake of suffering, but because this is how salvation permeates the world. Think for just a minute. The world, the world is twisted. The world is bent. The world is upside down and inside out. And when I say the world, I don't mean the creation. I don't mean the water and the uh, mountains and the uh, plains and the deserts. I don't mean, I don't mean creation. I'm talking about the world, the system of men's power, their culture, and all that they do and all that they build. The, the world of mankind is twisted, it is bent, it is upside down and inside out. And anybody who's going to join Jesus and go through the painful task of setting the world back right is first going to appear to be backwards and upside down themselves. You have to bend yourself out of conformity to the orientation of the world. And when you do that, it's painful. There are parts of you that have to die. There are things you have to let go. And there's a measure of ridicule and rejection and even persecution from those who are happy with the way things are. And when you bend yourself away from that, It makes them uncomfortable. What's wrong with me? Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to live that way? What's wrong with the way things are? And they reject you and they ostracize you. If uh, if I could, this is so silly, and I'm trying to come up with a better illustration, but let's say this whole building were flipped upside down and somehow the gravitational field was such that you stayed in your seats and all of us were just upside down, now sitting up here instead of down there. Just stay with me. Um, we're, we're all hanging upside down. One of you looks out the window and, and you see blue on the bottom and green on the top. You see, you look out the window and you say, hey, everybody, I think, I think we've been flipped upside down. And I think the way to get out the door and to be on the right side when we get out the door, I think we're going to have to walk on the ceiling. I think we're going to have to tear ourselves away from the orientation where we are presently and we're going to have to walk on the ceiling and get out the door. And everybody laughs at you and says, what? We don't walk on the ceiling. Did your mama raise you right? We don't, that's not what we do. We sit in our chairs. That's what we stay where we are. That's what we do. We're fine. There's nothing wrong with us. Why do you say we're upside down? And you say, no, really, y'all, I don't know what's going on, but we're upside down. Look out the window. Nobody wants to look out the window because that would be too scary to actually you know, know that you were telling the truth. So, so you painfully uh, 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 take the abuse of everybody saying, what's wrong with us? Why, why do you have to act so different? And you walk on the ceiling, you walk outside. And when you walk outside, you're upright. And we're still in here hanging upside down. Children, young people, young men and women, you in the lives that your parents have given you, where they have emphasized uh, certain things about God's covenant and they have given you a, a different life from the world. They have done these things because the world is upside down and they're asking you to walk upright. But from the world's perspective, it looks upside down. From the world's perspective, it looks inside out. And it's painful. It is sometimes just wretched to have to pull yourself away and bend yourself out of shape to walk upright. And yet, that's what Jesus calls us to do. Anyone who wants to go through this cosmic upheaval and come out on the other side standing up is going to have to be turned upside down and inside out first. And so Jesus says, if you're going to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. He describes this in terms of taking up your cross. 
the disciples had probably seen many people leave a village carrying a cross with a little band of soldiers. And they knew that that was a one-way trip. That guy's not coming back. Taking up the cross meant committing fully to this direction that Jesus is leading. In that day, the cross was not a good sign for an irritation. You know, when you think of the cross, you don't think inconvenience. Though, though Christians, we tend to think of it, modern Christians, we, we tend to think of all these little inconveniences as our little crosses. And I, I joke with my kids about this when, you know, my son the other day said, my shoe is hurting and it's turned inside out and something's going on. And I said, we all have our little crosses to bear. You know, all these little complaints, all these little things. I use that too frivolously, probably. But we, that's the way we think, that, that we, all these little inconveniences. And we think our crosses are putting up with disobedient kids or putting up with a difficult spouse or living with a chronic illness. But Jesus isn't talking here about some unavoidable trial that you passively submit to. This is an identity that he's calling us to, that of cross-bearer. It's an identity that we embrace. A man who took up his cross was a dead man. And so what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to die to the old world, die to the old ways, and join him on this march to Calvary, which requires you to die to yourself. That means die to your plans, define your entire existence in terms of who Jesus is and what his demands are on your life. Jesus says this is not something you do one time and you get it out of the way. What does he say? He says, take up your cross daily. Taking up your cross is not something you do once and you get some kind of spiritual high out of it and you feel good and then you say, wow, oh, that was was something. Boy, now I can take a break. I've arrived. I am done with cross bearing. I don't have to die to myself anymore, ever. That process is finished. No, it's never finished in this life, which is why we must take it up, as Jesus says, daily. Now there's a paradox here. Jesus says the way to save your life is to lose it. But, but, but you can lose your life by trying to save it. People of God, you have life not to keep it to yourself, not to reserve it for yourself, not to be the consummate self-preservationist. You have been given life in order to spend it. So he says in verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and his himself destroyed or lost? Think for just a moment of all the most important things in this world. To people who live as if this world is all there is, all of the markers of success, all of the indices of, of decency and morality and uprightness, all of those things, Jesus says you can have all of that. And still be destroyed and lose everything. You can have an outstanding education. You can have a big, beautiful house. You can have a rock-solid career. Unbelievable wealth and fame and power. You can have people begging you to work for them. You can possess talents that are out of this world. Talents that you have sweated and bled to hone and craft. You can have the most attractive spouse and the most beautiful children. You can volunteer on the weekends and give to the United Way. You can have a boat and a beach condo and take your family on incredible vacations. And yet, if that is the sum of your life, if those things are your identity, if at the end of your life, all we can say about you is, well, he had nice things. I mean, really, when it came down to it, he had really nice things. 
If that's your identity and you have not submitted your entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you lose it all. All of it. C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. All idols get destroyed. Everything that you put higher than the Lord Jesus is obliterated. Everything that we give praise and honor and glory to that belongs to Jesus is annihilated. So Jesus says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. If you're ashamed of him and ashamed of his words, then he's ashamed of you. If you shrink back from carrying his name on your lips and in your life, if you want people to think that you're not one of those, you know, crazy Christians who actually believes the Bible, if you're always giving the church the stiff arm, if you're distancing yourself from the people of God because the church is so lame and archaic and out of touch, okay, Jesus is ashamed of you too. That's what he says. If you're ashamed of me, I'm ashamed of you. For us, I think the application is this. You want Jesus to take your name to the Father, to intercede for you, to help and, 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 and cry out for provision and blessing. You want Jesus to not be ashamed, to take your name to the Father. You don't be ashamed of his name. Don't trade the favor and the attention of the king of creation for the attention and favor of wicked rebellious scoffers. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you want to look really cool in the eyes of these people and, 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 and have the Lord Jesus be ashamed of you? That, that doesn't make any sense. And last verse, and we'll stop after this. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. What is he referencing there? What does he say? He says, they won't taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Is he talking about the transfiguration? Is he talking about uh, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, the final destruction of the old world in AD 70. We could maybe argue for one or the other. Luke doesn't tell us which event Jesus is referencing. But what Jesus is saying is that for you guys, the work is not done. For you men, the kingdom of God is still coming in. It's still taking root. And there's a lot of cross-bearing to do between now and then. So let's, let's wrap it up with this. Let's go back to that question, that most important question ever. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? How you answer that question determines what kind of world you live in. Do you live in upside right world or do you live in upside down world? Do you live in the world where the lordship of Jesus is acknowledged and celebrated and enjoyed? Where what Jesus says is life? Or do you live in upside down world, clinging to idols, finding your identity in things that are fit for destruction, things that are make-believe, things that are fantasy, things that are not real. It is only when we find our identity and our meaning and our purpose and our worth in who Jesus is and in our union with him, it's only then that we can answer those self-diagnostic questions that I started with at the beginning. Who am I? Do I have worth? Do I have anything to contribute? Am I competent? Can I have any confidence in what I'm doing? Yes, but only if your life is hid with Christ and God. No, if you don't, because everything you do then is idolatry. Yes, if your work is worship, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, if you take up your cross daily. And as you work and study and play and sing and eat and drink, as you do these things, you say, I do this in the name and for the glory of my Lord Jesus Christ. I live in upside right world. And know that, that when that's your perspective and that's your confession, that this very normal, ordinary life that you live is very weird and alien and out of touch and antiquated and radical from the perspective of the world. But own that, acknowledge it, embrace it, accept that. At root, if we confess truly that Jesus is the Christ of God, then our lives, brothers and sisters, our lives are going to follow a different script. We're motivated by different desires. And, And when we step back and look at our lives, if we truly believe Jesus is who he says he is. We look at our lives, we'll see that our lives are shaped by the cross. We live these cruciform lives that all that I am is subject, is poured out as an offering to the Lord Jesus. Nothing is held back. So however poorly or however well I've articulated this today, I want to leave you just remembering this. Hear Jesus' call today. He says, take up your cross daily. Which means what? What are you going to do Monday morning? What are you going to do Tuesday morning? What are you going to do Wednesday this week? What's on your schedule for Thursday? I know what's on your schedule. I know what's on your schedule Friday. Take up your cross daily. Every day, lead and live a cruciform life, pouring yourself out for others and for the world. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, help us to understand these things. Cause your words to sink down into our ears and in our lives. And help us to embrace and appreciate that you have given us the ability to see reality and to live in reality. May we never be ashamed of or, or upset by or, or out of touch with this world that you have opened our eyes up to. And so we ask you also to keep our children, uh, to, to uh, help them see the twistedness and the brokenness and the upside downness of the, the world about them and to see the uprightness and the glory and the beauty of living with your people under our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so, Father, it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.